decision that landed you in hot water. And then when you tried to fix the problem, you just ended up making it worse. Sadly, this is most of my building projects. (laughs) Then I have to call Glenn to come bail me out. My wife and I will sometimes watch those home shows, you know, the ones where they flip the house, completely remaking it. Invariably, the contractor will bid the job at something, something, and then the sheetrock comes off and they discover mold or, you know, some plumbing leak that's gone on forever and, and some unforeseen problem they lay hidden in the house is now exposed. And the more that they begin to tear away, the more the problem emerges and it gets worse and worse. And so they have, you know, this is great for TV because they need that drama. Otherwise, it's just, you know, contractors working. I, I don't know how exciting it would be to follow you on the job side. But, but with this suspense of, you know, this, it's going to cost $2,000 more and I don't know if we can do it. And, you know, then they close up on the couple who's hand-wringing and, and they're thinking, why did we buy this house? Right, And sometimes that's how it is in life. We have a problem and we think we can fix it on our own. And so we try and then we just make the situation worse. And that's what we find in our text this morning. David is in one of those situations. It started with what seemed like a good idea. I'll go and take refuge among the enemies of my enemy because they are now my friend. So he goes and he lives amongst the Philistines. And if you're new and you've not heard the whole story, David has been anointed as the king, the rightful king of Israel. But Saul is still acting as king. And so David has been on the run from Saul because Saul has been trying to persecute him over and over again. And we follow David on his journey, waiting for the time when he would be king. But we noticed last, not last week, but the week before in chapter 27, that David said, I'm no longer going to hide in the wilderness in Israel. I'm going to run away to the Philistines. I'll find safety there. But when he was there, he had to kind of disguise his true identity and what his real motives were. He told King Achish that he was making some raid in this Israelite city. But in reality, he was doing a raid against one of Israel's enemies. And Akesh thinks that he's making himself a stench in the eyes of all of Israel. He thinks that he is now going to be loyal to him forever. And remember, it ended on a cliffhanger because he said to David, you are going to go out to battle against Israel with me. And now David faces this conundrum. What am I going to do? I've got to go and fight against my own people. And I've sided with my enemy. And how am I going to get out of this? And so David although he tried to fix the problem, ended up making the situation worse. Finally, the day has arrived. And David follows Achish to meet the rest of the Philistine armies as they gather in the north. And we sit with bated breath on the edge of our seats, waiting and wondering, how is David going to get out of this situation? And as the story unfolds, we get a, a crash course in God's providence and a solid reminder of the truth of Romans 8.28, that God does indeed work all things together for good for his people that love him and are called according to his purpose. And even, even when it means providing a way out from the foolish choices that we make. 
So let's read the text together, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 29 of 1 Samuel. It's also printed in your bulletin. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the Lord of, lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? Since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go out to battle with us, lest in battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me, it seems right that you should march out and, and, and end with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me unto this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now go and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go in and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are blameless. You are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we give you thanks for this, your word. And as we come to it, we ask that you reveal mysteries to us. Your providence is a mystery to us. How you are working all things together for our good is a mystery to us. We cast about at our own situations, our lives, and we are led at times to despair. We ask, Father, that you would help us to trust in you that we would see your hand of providence at work in David's life is the same hand of providence that's at work in ours. So as we come to this text, open our hearts and grant to us faith. For we pray this in Jesus' name, and amen. God will deliver despite how bad we make the situation. Do you believe that? I wonder if David did. We left off two weeks ago at the end of chapter 27 with David's somewhat cryptic statement in response to Achish's summons to go out to battle with him. He said, you will see what your servant can do. What does that mean, David? There seems to be no good way out of this situation. So he goes out to battle with Achish. What else can he do? But as they reach the battlefront, David passes in front of the rest of the Philistine commanders, which are the lords. These are five Philistine lords. They are heads or kings over cities in Philistia. 
And they're more than a little bit disturbed at the presence of these Hebrews. Mercenaries, per se. This was not uncommon for armies to hire out mercenaries to come and go to battle with them, right? We see something like this happening in Ukraine with Syrian fighters. So it is common for an army to have another mercenary group go out with them. But it would be weird if we were fighting Syria and then we enlisted Syrian fighters to go with us, right? You would be kind of like, I don't know if we can trust them. Is this a great idea? Akesh seems to think it's a great idea, but the rest of the lords are not convinced. And Akesh points out that David has been loyal. He's been a loyal mercenary, right? He is, remember, Akesh thinks that David has been making raids on Israel. He thinks Israel hates David. So he has no choice but to be with Akesh. Akesh sings David's praise, for he's, he's thoroughly convinced that David has made himself a stench to Israel, not knowing, of course, that all of that were, was built on lies. David has not been truthful with Akesh. He's misled him to think that he is on his side. Akesh remains convinced. I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. That's quite a statement, Right? I don't know, but I would have squirmed at that because I know that I'm, I'm not telling him the truth, right? I, I only have that position because I have misled him to believe that I'm loyal to him and that I'm not loyal to Israel anymore. And the tricky hole that David keeps making bigger is complicated, not merely because he has to go out to battle against Israel. David has a PR problem. If he is seen going out in battle with the Philistines, fighting against Saul, and then Saul dies, David could be blamed for killing Saul. Even if David's real motives were to turn amid the battle and fight with Israel against the Philistines. In the heat of battle, it's difficult to tell who is who. How would you know? How would they know? How would somebody on this side of the battle know that David's actually fighting for them when it looked like he went out against them, right? David has a PR problem. It isn't every attempt that David makes to extricate himself from the situation seems to make it worse. Isn't this a perfect illustration of every means that we employ to try to save ourselves? This is what happens. The near frantic effort of our world to make every day to try to fix itself. In essence, what are our effects, our efforts at education, at legislation, at medication, if they're not an attempt to overcome or at least lessen the effects of sin? Why does Google want all of the information in the world? Why do politicians want all the power in the world? Well, so they can make it better, of course. But it turns out when you control the flow of information, you can choose which information you want people to see and which you don't. And as Reagan said, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. It's hard to even think of a problem the government tries to solve that they don't end up just making worse. So far, they're doing a bang-up job on climate change. COVID was an excellent example. 
Now, I'm not suggesting we don't try to fix problems. That's not what I'm saying. We, we do live in a sin-sick world that's fallen. And, it, and because of that, there is brokenness all around us. And we should be trying to fix those problems. But we should adopt the attitude that the preacher in Ecclesiastes found. He recounts all the ways that he had sought to understand life in this world. He applied his heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And he found in Ecclesiastes 1.15 that what is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. And Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. Some problems will remain with us until glory. And that doesn't mean we, don't, we throw up our hands and we don't try to tackle them. But it means that we adopt attitudes of humility and seek the wisdom of God before trying to take matters into our own hands. Before running off to the Philistines for refuge from Saul. But the fantastic thing is that despite how bad David continues to make his situation, God came and intervened anyway. The deliverance God offers David didn't come because David deserved it or had aligned himself perfectly with God's will, that God was somehow obliged to deliver him. God came to where David was, stuck in an ever-worsening situation with an, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this situation. And he intervenes right there to save David. This is not an excuse to get yourself into these predicaments. Hey, I know what I'll, we'll test God out. Let's see if he can get me out of this. You know, and you go rack up a bunch of debt or something. No, that's not what's, what, what's happening here. But there is an encouragement here. God comes and meets us where we are. He comes and takes you where you are, not where you should be. As David praised God in Psalm eighteen sixteen. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. Or as Paul said to Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Jesus didn't come for people who have it all together. There are none. Or think they have it all together. There are plenty of those. Jesus came to save sinners, people who have so screwed up their lives beyond all repair. For the people who, like David, tried to fix the problem, sin, but, but ended up making it much worse. So take heart. If your life seems to be a mess that you can't figure out how to get out of, then stop trying. Or at least stop trying to do it your way and look to Jesus Christ. He is the only solution to the sin-sick world, to poverty, to injustice, to loneliness, to suffering, to pain, to addiction. He is the only place where salvation can be found. And the most amazing thing is, He doesn't ask you to clean yourself up to come. He just says, come. Come. With all your mess, with all your how am I going to get out of this dilemma, Come and bring those to Jesus Christ. Maybe you think, okay, that's great, but I've already come to Christ, and I still made a mess, and it's getting worse, and I don't know what to do. 
This might not sound comforting, but hear me out. This is exactly where God wants you to be. Because He wants you to learn to rely upon Him. He wants you to learn to stop trying to fix it with your own measures. He wants you to understand so deep down in your bones the truth that might still only rest in your head. And that's the truth of Romans 8.28. The truth that all things that happen in your life are serving a purpose. Even your mistakes like seeking refuge among the Philistines. Even your sin, your loss, your pain, all of it is designed by a Heavenly Father that is using it all to form you into something better. But something that you would never become without detours, without living in Philistia for a time, without setbacks that God is weaving all together for your good. Perhaps this is the source of David's confident assertion in chapter 27 to Achish. You will see what I can do. Perhaps David is by faith trusting that God who had delivered him from the mouths of lions and bears when they came after his lambs and has delivered him from the giant Goliath and who has on numerous occasions delivered him from Saul and from Saul's alter eager Nabal. So perhaps David thinks as he did in Psalm 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Or Psalm 56, 11, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? The litany of characters described in Hebrews 11 are all singled out, not for their uncanny ability to get themselves out of messes. They just make messes. And they believe God would get them out of them. They are unique because despite what they could see with their eyes, they trusted that God would deliver them and be faithful to his promises. They believed even if it led to death or any manner of unfavorable circumstances. So the encouragement here is that you can still trust in God that he will deliver deliver you even if the mess you're in, you caused. Which, if I'm honest, is most of my messes. It is invariably the case that we make the messes and God steps in to save us from them. And no challenge is too hard. No challenge is too hard for God. He does quite well on the ones that seem impossible, like death and hell. I know that is the mess that my sins deserve, yet God saved me from them. And just like David's case, he did it in a surprising way using surprising means because God is merciful and long-suffering to deliver his people. We must trust in his providential care. The most surprising thing about this passage is the way that God providentially orchestrates David's deliverance from this situation. David is saved from his dilemma by the Philistines. That has got to cause you to laugh. It's humorous. God uses David's enemies to deliver him from the mess that he made, that he got himself into. So imagine David's surprise 
when Achish comes to tell him the bad news, David would not be able to go out with the army, but he dares not reveal his true feelings. So he cautiously pleads his innocence. What have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go out and fight against the enemies of the Lord, the king? God does not cast aside David, but instead uses this moment to deliver him in the most surprising way, using means David would never have thought of. This deliverance is not just from having to go out and fight against Israel, bad as that was, but it was deliverance from guilt by association. We know something that David doesn't. Saul and Jonathan and all of Saul's sons are going to die in this battle. Saul knows that. We know it. David doesn't know that. God has delivered David from that guilt, the blood guilt of association. Again, in the providential care of his servant David, God preserved him not only from death, but also set him up for a smooth transition after Saul's death. There is bound to be suspicion over intrigue in a dynasty change. I mean, we've all seen the period drama movies, right? With the king and his son is supposed to be the next king, but then somebody kills the son, and it's, it's all politics and it's all court intrigue. Right? And it makes for a good drama. Well, we have that here. How is David going to become king? He is not in Saul's house. It's a new dynasty. And there's bound to be people who look at David with a little bit of suspicion. David, of course, will face accusations later when he's forced to flee Jerusalem when Absalom rebels. Listen to this in 2 Samuel 16. When King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Now imagine how much worse it would have been had David actually killed Saul. You see, God spared him from that. God delivered him from just the association of being in battle. Because even years later, there are some in the house of Saul that look at David suspiciously. So God uses David's enemies, the Philistines, to deliver David from the dilemma he caused. He made that problem by fleeing to them in the first place. Now imagine reading this as an Israelite years later. Say, when you're in the exile in Babylon. Imagine reading that God used the Philistines to deliver David out of this crazy dilemma. How humorous, but also how remarkable the way that God providentially cares for us. Stories like this condition Israel not to be surprised when God does the same thing. For who would have thought that Cyrus, the king of the Persians 
would not only release Israel to go back to the land, but would pay for the whole trip and pay for the rebuilding of the temple of Israel. The enemies of God unwittingly being used for God's purposes. No deliverance is too hard for God. This is the character of our God who is working all things together for our good, for the good of his people. Remarkably, as it is that God in his mercy saved David from this mess, he made through David's enemies. The more surprising thing is that God has done the same thing for you and me. And the most surprising turn of events in human history, God himself came to earth and took on flesh, dwelling among us. David's deliverance was a mere microcosm of the dilemma facing all of mankind. For in Adam, all of mankind sought refuge from, with God's enemy by listening to the serpent's voice, rebelling against God by taking from the tree which he told Adam not to eat from. And that act of rebellion created the greatest dilemma, for the punishment was death. Not just physical death, but a spiritual death of eternal separation from God symbolized in Adam's being cast out of the garden. There was no way back into fellowship with God. No way we, as sinful creatures, could be in God's presence. How would we ever overcome this dilemma? Being sinful and therefore bent in on ourselves, we've certainly tried. And God even gave us means by which we could come back into fellowship with Him. But the means seemed counterintuitive because the means were faith. Faith that God Himself in some surprising way would overcome the dilemma our sin had created. So God sent deliverers, redeemers, men who would bring about salvation, but only approximately. For deliverer from Moses to Ezra, was fatally marred by their own sin. But they created a longing, a longing as we looked to their deliverance, which was small, localized, and often marred by sin, until the time when God would send His own Son, the second person of the Trinity, fully God and fully man, to be the Savior of the world. Surprise! No one saw that coming. But even more surprising was the means that God used to deliver his people from their great dilemma. A cross? In the most surprising development in history, God delivers his people from the bondage of sin, freeing them from the dilemma and restoring them to right relationship with him by sending his son to die in their place. No one saw this coming. As Paul said, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Finally, we have a deliverer not marred by sin. But then he dies unexpectedly. Although he warned his disciples that that was the way. The Philistines had no idea they were doing David a favor and were actually setting themselves up for years of trouble and their eventual overthrow. Had they have known what this action would lead to, they would have slaughtered David and his men right there. But that only shows that they are not in control. God is. 
God is working out his purposes in history. His purposes, not the Philistines' purposes, not even David's purposes. God's purposes are being worked out. In the same way, the religious leaders of the first century, driven by Satan himself, they thought they had put an end to another errant deliverer, only that to find out that they were the tools that God was using to carry out his plan of redemption. In our New Testament lesson, we read the account of Jesus before Pilate and Herod. Unlike David, Jesus didn't have to lie and give misinformation to feign innocence. But he stood before these men innocent of all charges. Pilate sounds much like Achish when he declares to the people that he finds no fault in Jesus. David only approximates Jesus. But Jesus is But David is not genuinely innocent. David points to Jesus who endured exile in death so that we could be freed from death's grip forever. But there's there's one more surprising way that God delivers his people. So surprising, many today reject it. For the surprising way that we participate in the restoration of all things, deliverance of this world from the bondage of decay is through the same surprising means. Death. Jesus said in John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We are okay with the idea that Jesus died for us, but that we must also join him in dying to ourselves. Now that is harder for us to get behind. Dying is painful, and it includes self-denial, a condition against which our sinful flesh still rebels. It is marvelous to contemplate the truth that God, despite often making our matters worse, is working all things together for our good. But we then interpret that to mean sunshine, roses, walks in the park, carefree, hakuna matata. It means no worries. But it turns out that that kind of life is not in your best interest. It's not for your good. That kind of life is an opiate to prepare you for hell. To lull you to sleep. So you shun easy living and you embrace the cross of Jesus Christ. Go with him in suffering unto death so that you can also share in his resurrection from the dead. Because God is merciful and long-suffering to deliver his people, we must entrust ourselves to his providential care. Amen? Amen. And this morning, as as we come to this table, this table is a reminder to us that God sent his Son to be our Savior, to be the sacrifice in our place. The surprising way that God intervened in your messy situation is that he sent his only son to die for you. He gave his own body for you. He shed his blood 
You should have died there. You deserve to die. But God's love was greater. He overcame the greatest of dilemmas by sending his son. And he gives us this meal. This meal is a visible reminder, a visible word that we take and we eat, we taste it, and we remember. And through that act of eating, we remember what Jesus has done for us. That he gave himself, that he took our place, that he offers us forgiveness. So if your situation is like, it's a mess. I, I, I can't put together all the pieces to make it right anymore. I've tried everything. I've tried self-help books. I've tried medication. I've tried learning. Nothing has fixed the emptiness, the hole that I have. Nothing has got me out of my situation. Jesus has. Jesus has. And if you, if you don't know Jesus, if he's not your Savior, 